Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey everyone, and thanks for listening. Today I'm speaking with Tom Millay, CEO of Demand Jump, a marketing strategy platform that's raised over 25 million in funding. Tom, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks, Brad. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today. No problem. Super excited to have you. Let's kick off with maybe just a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background. Well, Brad, I have over 40 years in software. So I started a long time ago. I started as a programmer for a large company in their IT organization. And then a few years later, I started working for software product companies. I've been at the executive level for the last 25 years. I joined Demand Jump as CEO a little over a year ago. A little bit of the background story there is that the founder CEO last year had an opportunity to take his dream job. He's now the CEO of Elevate Ventures, which is a leading venture capital company in the Midwest, headquartered here in Indianapolis. I knew one of the investors in Demand Jump, had known him for about 20 years, and he contacted me about the opportunity to take over as CEO. One thing led to another. I joined the company, and that's just an example of the power of our personal networks, right? And you guys are based there in Indianapolis. What's the tech scene like there today? It's growing. Uh, It's definitely grown significantly, and Indianapolis is, is known as one of the leading tech organizations in the Midwest. So we've grown the number of technology companies and software companies very significantly over the the last 10 to 15 years. One of the things that you might want to look up is the rally conference that we held here just last week was a technology conference put on by Elevate Ventures and had thousands of attendees from all over the world. It's focused on innovation. I want to talk a little bit about your background there. So you mentioned 40 years in tech. You know, that's a, that's a lot longer than a, a lot of the founders listening in. Yeah, I think you know, a lot of founders listening in are 25, you know, 30 years old. So talk to us about how you've seen tech evolve over the last 40 years. I've seen it evolve in a way that's better for the customers. So I come out of a world where from a software company perspective, We were taking a long time to develop new things and deliver value to customers. And the agile scrum methodology has just completely changed everything and increased both this, obviously the speed which with customers receive both initial value and ongoing value, and then the overall value over time. The second thing that I think is a major across that 40 years is that you think back to what it was like to have started a company around the time when I started, you had to build your own computing infrastructure for a software company to offer a product. And then along comes the cloud and Amazon Web Services, such a huge shift in how much it costs to actually start a company, which led obviously to the proliferation of software. So if you combine those two things together, just very significant changes from when I started that are best for everybody, both our customers and and in the tech industry. 
I guess one of the downsides of that you know, ease of access to start a company is there's a lot more competition. So I guess that sounds like there's like maybe like pros and cons there. What would be the ideal scenario for you? Would you rather be starting a company from scratch today or in, let's say, like uh, 2000? I'd rather start a company from scratch today. So back in, in 2000, you're spending a lot of money to get a company started and taking a long time to deliver the initial product. And even though it's competitive today, I totally agree it's more competitive. I'd rather start today using the techniques around developing a minimum viable product and focusing on a, on a niche market and carving out a place for the solution that I've developed and then growing it from there, from that initial set of customers to product market fit. And then based on that product market fit, going into adjacent segments, building the company over time. That's another factor, Brett, that I believe has changed over time. We have a lot more information now in terms of best practices on how to start and operate and grow a high-tech company, much more so than we did 20-some years ago. Makes sense. I think back then, a lot of that was probably reserved for Silicon Valley or tightly held in Silicon Valley. And today there's you know, millions and millions of blog posts. There's podcasts like this one and thousands of others. There's just a lot of content out there and a lot of people who've experienced it you know, firsthand and graded content and educational resources to help others do the same. Yes, exactly. And then there's that plus there's the whole group of people that were successful back then founding and building companies. And they're not only passing on their knowledge, but they're investing in companies as angel investors, or they've moved over into formal venture capital firms and they're making investments and passing on their knowledge that way, much more so than, you know, 20, 25 years ago. Do you think the company's at a disadvantage at all, not being in a major tech hub like Silicon Valley or New York City, or do you view that as an advantage? Here, we view that as an advantage for multiple reasons. It's interesting how the less available the capital here is in the Midwest makes us more capital conservative as we're building our companies. And so by force makes us conserve capital and be capital efficient as we're building our company. So in the Midwest, there is a reputation for being more capital efficient just because the availability of capital is lower. There's also advantages in the availability of the workforce of people that are committed to growing up in the Midwest and staying in the Midwest. We have excellent universities here and the lower cost of the workforce is also a positive factor for us here in the Midwest. So there are a lot of positives. Also, given that fact that I've been in this for 40 years, Indianapolis, as an example, is dramatically different and better for starting and growing a company than it was 20 years ago. There's much more of an ecosystem now than there was back then. You know, I grew up in Kalamazoo, Michigan, so I spent a lot of time in the Midwest. I used to come to Indiana every, uh, probably like every month for hockey, played a lot of hockey there. So big fan ah. of the Midwest. And it's a, a very different culture um, than you find here in, in Silicon Valley. And I, I think that 
what you're saying just makes a lot of sense, right? I think in Silicon Valley, they're used to having FU money thrown at them and they have, you know, unlimited <laughs> budgets and that typically doesn't lead to very good things, but it would make sense in the Midwest. If there's less capital, they're going to be more conservative and probably much more careful with how they're deploying that cash. Yes, that is exactly correct. That's how we work here in the Midwest. Makes a lot of sense. I love it. Now, a few other quick questions that we like to ask, and the goal here is really just to better understand what makes you tick. First one, what founder do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? Well, I actually have a local founder is the one that I admire the most. So it's easy to name a famous founder, right, that we all know about. But there's a founder here that I worked with. His name is Brian Powers. He started a company called PackSafe, that's P-A-C-T-S-A-F-E. And it, he developed a unique set of technology in that startup. Uh, it's called now called ClickRap technology. But just to give you a quick example of, of what it is, a few years back when we were all accepting the initial agreement on an e-commerce site or when we first signed up for Uber or DoorDash or something like that, either as a customer or as, as a driver in that example, there was actually no physical record of that specific transaction, which led to some legal issues down the road on both sides. And what Brian and his early team did was he had a background as an attorney. So he solved that problem and built technology that would record that. And Founded the company in 2013, sold it to Ironclad for a very good return for investors, sold it in 2021 to Ironclad, which is a contract management SaaS company. And what I really like about Brian is that he's just one of the people I've met that has a very high level of common sense and practicality, kind of similar to the last conversation that we, we just had. He was just so practical in how he ran his company. And there was a factor there and he had started his own law firm, went out on his own. He was in his forties when he founded PackSafe, had a lot of experience that he applied to starting a software company and running it and successfully growing it. I always love when guests share examples that are, you know, local founders, obviously, like you were saying, like the easy answer is, you know, Elon Musk or Steve Jobs or Jeff Bezos. But I find those to be just a little bit boring. And it's pretty obvious that we can all be inspired by them. So appreciate you going with a, a local example there. Well, thanks. Happy to do that. I worked with Brian and with PackSafe as a consultant. So I feel a sense of, first of all, I understand the situation at a detailed level. But also, I made a tiny little contribution <laughs> to the success of PackSafe, helped them out with a couple of things. So it's just a great story for us here in Indianapolis. Now, what about books? And the way we like to frame this, this comes from an author named Ryan Holiday. He calls them quick books. So a quick book is a book that like rocks you to your core, really influences how you think about the world and how you approach life. Do any quick books come to mind for you? I'm going to apply that question, Brett, to the high-tech industry specifically rather than in, in general in my life. So in general in my life, my answer would be the Bible. Specifically to high tech, my answer to that is a classic, Crossing the Chasm, had a significant impact on me and people that I worked with back when that book came out. So the concepts there around solving a mission-critical problem, focus, building your company niche by niche, is the foundation of what I've done ever since that book came out. 
And if you're okay with it, I'd like to give you a second one that references crossing the chasm is kind of an updated version and, and has some similar concepts in it. Is that okay with you? Of course. There's a book called From Impossible to Inevitable that came out just a few years back. The co-authors are Jason Lemkin of Saster and Aaron Ross of Predictable Revenue. And Aaron is the founder of the sales development concept and actually wrote a book called Predictable Revenue that we now all follow as that's how we do sales development. And he, he went on to lead his current company, which he called Predictable Revenue. So Jason and Aaron got together to write this book, and I'd highly recommend it if you're starting a high-tech company as to the concepts in that book. For example, part one is called Nail a Niche. I've read all three of those books, and I'm a, I'm a huge fan. I read the Aaron Ross book back in like 2014, and, yes. and used that to build our first sales team and sales org, and just got a lot of value out of it. And then with Crossing the Chasm, what I find most fascinating about that book is that despite the fact that it's what, like 30 years old now, it's still so incredibly relevant. And when I was first recommended to read that book, I looked at it and like, what am I going to get from a book that's written in the 80s right. and 90s? Like, what am I going to learn today about these problems that I'm facing? And I was completely wrong. As I dug into it, I found that, you know, no matter how much technology has changed, like these principles are still here. And it, it just doesn't really matter what technology it is or what time period it is. There's just core principles here that just don't really change. Yeah, I totally agree. And I did a couple years on my own as a consultant and I was developing some material and helping some companies and I was walking them through the concepts and crossing the chasm. I'd read it and applied it, but I hadn't actually looked for any further material for years. So I started doing some searches. It's like, wow, crossing the chasm is still referred to in very recent articles. And it was written 25, 30 years ago. And here are these people developing content around startup best practices referring to the book. And it wasn't just one or two references. It was all over the internet with recent examples of content that referenced the Crossing the Chasm book. So fascinating. Now let's switch gears here and let's dive deeper into demand jump. So at a high level, what problem do you solve? We solve the problem of how does a company increase their organic search engine rankings? How do they go from where they're at to getting higher levels of rankings on the available search engines, primarily Google? And so how we solve that problem is we help our customers understand what new content to develop and what content to change and how to structure it in order to improve search engine rankings for our customers. And so the way that we do that is if you give us a topic that you want to be a, a thought leader in, a topic that's important to you, it, to give you an example of what I mean by topic, most of our customers, the way they structure their website, they either have top-level menu items that are basically the answer to our question of what are your topics that you're interested in, or they'll structure it underneath a menu item like solutions. So they use one or two of those techniques. If you go into the customer that's doing the solutions and that's a top level menu item on their website, you'll generally see a list of items that make sense for, well, this is what they want to be known for. 
they want to describe in general what this solution is. They want to answer the question you just asked me, what problem does it address? How does it address it? Why are they better? So all of that writing that they do around that, what we do is we bring in the network of search data on that topic. So it's way more than just the individual keywords. It's that at that topic level, what your target market is searching on, we bring in all that data from Google. We understand that data. We apply some unique math to it that is built upon a new content strategy methodology called pillar-based marketing. That's where the how do you structure your content comes in. Uh, so relatively new term, relatively new methodology, and we have our own unique version of the methodology and our own unique math that, that we apply to that search engine data. And what comes out of our product is, here's your content strategy for this topic. And of course, customers can do multiple topics. And then we take it forward to how do you structure that content? And here's content briefs that you can use to start the writing of your content. That's what we do. The results that we achieve with our approach to helping our customers improve their search engine rankings, I've personally been involved in the trial and error, very individual keyword focused. And that's, you produce some content, you put it on a website, you wait to see what the reaction is. It can take six, nine, 12 months to see if you're making any improvements. We've had customers publish content in the way that we suggest to them to both develop it and publish it, and they will significantly increase their rankings in one to two months versus the typical six to 12 months. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. And can you tell us about the history of the company? So I know it started in 2015, but it's gone through various chapters. Can you talk us through those different chapters? Sure, happy to. The company was founded eight years ago and started as a technology-enabled services company focused on digital marketing services. The company did an excellent job supporting its customers. However, the cost of that technology enabled it, the cost of how much they had to spend when in the first few years of the company on getting the data that they needed to do the digital marketing side of things was just prohibitive. The company could never get over that large cost infrastructure hump. And so the good news for demand jump along the way is that that experience in digital marketing, plus some changes that Google made to its algorithm a few years back, Google's algorithm and Google's North Star, as a result of that change a few years ago and continues now in the direction that they're headed in, is to really help people with quality answers to what they're searching for. So the experience level, the trustworthiness of whatever website they're going to is much more important than things like older things like domain authority. 
So Demand Job became aware of that just through providing digital marketing services, both paid and organic search, and decided to develop a software product just focused on, well, what's the best way to understand what content to develop and how to structure it? And started down the path of, of the software product that we have today. We started down that path in early 2020. Then when I came into the company a little bit over a year ago, I did a detailed review of sort of both sides of the company. And the company had been de-emphasizing the, the digital marketing services side of the company. The cost was an issue. And we made the difficult decision to work with our customers to transition out of that original business. And our customers were great. We had about 22 customers still of, of that business. We transferred them over to partners of ours that could take care of their needs. And as of the beginning of this year, we've been solely focused on the content strategy SAP product business that we have. And, and we have 200 plus customers of, of that business. And what's a typical customer like for you? Is that enterprise, mid-mid? Who's like a, what's a typical ideal customer? So a typical ideal customer at a high level is organizations that offer considered purchase product or services. So by that, what I mean is that it's an important enough purchase for the buyer of that type of product or service that they're going to do a fair amount of research. And a lot of times it's multiple people doing research on that particular issue that they're trying to solve and the available solutions to that. Now, within that, where has demand jump historically focused was a very high percentage of our, our customers, both initially and through the end of last year, were software companies, SaaS companies that were a million to 10 million in ARR. So we have customers outside of that. We also sell the digital marketing agencies that include our product and the services that they provide. And they can provide services to B2B companies, B2C companies, et cetera. Our own direct sales effort was primarily focused on those early stage SaaS companies. Since the beginning of this year, we've expanded that to, we've gone up market in SaaS. We have some pretty significant sized SaaS companies now as customers, and we branched over into IT services also. So that gives you the example of, well, how has the company applied the crossing the chasm approach of focusing on a segment and then expanding it into adjacent segments? Does, does that answer your question, Brett? Yeah, it definitely does. And some follow-up questions based on that or just based on everything that you've said. When it comes to market categories, what's that specific market category? Is this SEO technology? Is it more broad content marketing technology? Where do you think you fall within? It is an interesting mix of those two. And it's also specific to SEO content strategy. So there, I wouldn't call us a full category creation strategy. But I would say that we're a subcategory creation strategy, if that makes sense. So within content marketing, we're specific to content strategy, and we're trying to carve that out as and make some noise in the marketplace around you need a newer, fresher methodology for your content 
strategy, that side of your overall content process. That's where I, I would put us is in content marketing. And of course, SEO content, which is, if you look on G2, there's also a category. We're also associated with that. So we play in both of those, but there's overlap between the two. Now, I consider myself a marketer, and yeah, I've been reading the headlines now for 10 years of email is dead, SEO is dead. Is SEO dead? No, SEO is definitely not dead. So you can see Google incorporating AI and chat GPT types of technology into the Google search experience. So Google definitely doesn't believe that it's dead. There are obviously alternative sources of information, but what we definitely see and what our customers definitely see is organic search is still one of the prominent lead sources in both B2B and B2C. We haven't seen any change in that. So one of the things that we need to deal with as a technology and part of our vision in the long term is, well, there are multiple types of content across multiple channels, of course, but that doesn't mean that SEO is dead. Uh, there are some things that, that we say, we take some pretty strong positions that SEO is definitely different than it used to be. We've taken a strong position that domain authority is dead. So that concept of backlinking and the importance of, of backlinking we take the position that that is nowhere near as important to Google now as the authority that you are on the topic that you're writing on, because they're trying to help people find quality content. They're no longer primarily measuring that by how many backlinks that you have to content that, that they recognize and, and understand. So that old way of doing SEO, we would argue, is mostly dead, but SEO in general, definitely not. Now, I talk with a lot of founders about how there's just a lot of noise in every industry today, and every industry just has more vendors than ever before. And whenever I have those talks, you know, I end up referencing that famous MarTech landscape that I'm, I'm sure you've seen before, yes. where they, you know, they started tracking it in what, like 2010, and they were like, a hundred vendors. And then now the, like, the map is just kind of like a joke. You can't even see the companies. There's like 10,000 vendors now on it, something crazy like that. So there's a lot, a lot of noise in MarTech. What do you do to stand out and cut through and rise above all of that noise? Well, I think there's a, two things that are related. One is the more that a startup can do something that's it's difficult to do a full category creation strategy now, but the more that a startup can do something where it is different enough that when you take it through, it's like, yeah, I'm going to try to position that as a subcategory, something that is very new and different. So if you're going to do that, there's a couple things that come out of that, which is it is going to take longer with that type of strategy, but I think it's more successful in the end. It does take longer than the normal two to three years of a successful startup to get to that 2 million in annual recurring revenue where that leads to high growth if you're venture funded. The category, even subcategory creation, what I would recommend that we all recognize is it just takes longer. Now, what are we doing at Demand Jump given that that, that is our strategy? 
we're doing two things in, in order to, to stand out. One is, is that last fall, we started participating in more and more industry events and became, we became much more focused on, we want to earn our way into a speaking position at events. And that does require a new message. You need to be working on something that's new and different that is going to attract the attention, not only of, of the event organization that's putting on the event, but the audience in attendance. That's how you get asked back to do multiple events that that event organizer may be putting on across the country. The second thing that we've done is our chief solution officer and the original co-founder CEO of Demand Jump co-authored a book called Pillar-Based Marketing. And that book was published at the end of March of this year. And just to give you an example of what can happen, the publisher told us that we'd be doing good to sell a thousand copies of that book in the first year. And it's been out about six months and we've sold over 2,500 copies. So if it's new enough and it's a fresh enough idea, both with your, in your solution, you can put that in your positioning and messaging, obviously. And then stand out from all the noise that is out there because what, what you're doing is so new and different. Like I, I like what Jason Lemkin has to say, which is your solution needs to be 10 times better than what is out there. And working until you find that and you get the product market fit with something that's 10x better, there'll be a way to market it with a message that is different. And as long as you focus on a niche, make sure you're, you're doing the nail a niche, crossing the chasm type approach. I think that's the best way to build a company over time. Now, as I mentioned there in the intro, there's been 25 million to date. I know that's been spread across, you know, all these different chapters of the company and, and you were involved in kind of the, the later chapters. But if we just focus on fundraising so far, what have you learned about fundraising throughout this journey? Well, I've learned that it, it's more difficult than it was when I went into it, number one. The second thing is I've learned that once the funding is raised, being conservative uh, with that capital and being capital efficient, it is important for raising the next round. So how well you use that capital will lead to what level of valuation that you're able to achieve with that capital, which of course leads to the next round of funding going well. And that's a good lesson, especially in times like this. So I'm, I'm not saying anything that is really unique. Most of us, I would guess that most of the people listening to the podcast are going through this year is not going as well as the last year did for them. As an example, the market they're selling into is likely not as active as it was before. So that concept of capital efficiency, it's been talked about all year long. It's just specific to fundraising. I do think it's important to think about it in terms of making sure that you show you can be capital efficient and build a business that way in order to earn that next round. 
Yeah, I talk with a lot of founders and if someone comes on the podcast and they tell me that everything's just rosy and perfect and you know, there, there's no pain, there's no challenges, things are better than last year, then I have to assume that they're uh, you know full of shit for, uh, for lack of a better description. I think every founder right now has been you know, hit with just a lot of challenges and I think it seems like you know, we're on the tail end of that and things are maybe looking a little bit better, but it's been a, a really hard last 12, 18 months for a lot of companies. Yes, it has been. And... I can give you demand jump as an example, and I'm also going to cite some things that we did that have had some positive results that if we had not done, we'd be in in, in an issue sort of situation. So our 2022, we ended 2022 with 100% growth in ARR. We're projecting this year is going to be about 50% growth. And we feel good about that given the market that we're selling into, which is a a lot of SaaS companies and IT services companies. In general, that market is down this year. We all know that. But some interesting things that we did that I hope will be helpful is if you look at the, for Demand Jump, I was looking at our January through August period of this year compared to last year, and we've more than doubled the ACV of our sales that we make with our direct sales team. And that has just been through, I joined the organization and one of the reactions that I had coming in is I I knew the solution was unique and was going to help with a problem that I had personally experienced. And one of my reactions when I came into the company was, we're not charging enough. We're not capturing our fair share of the economic value of the transaction between us and, and our customers. So we've raised our prices a couple of times since I joined, and that's what has led to this increase in new customer ACV. And a very similar story for the sales made through our channel, where our marketing agency partners are using our solution to provide their services, uh, that ACV increase in the January through August period compared to last year has been 35%. And without those two changes, as I mentioned, life would be a more little bit more difficult at demand jump. We, we would not be reaching 50% growth this year. Was it hard to make that decision to raise prices? Yeah, I've worked with a number of companies through that process. And then also on the receiving end, I, you know, every day, I think I just got an email from Loom today that they're increasing prices. So I'm feeling it as a buyer that it's being increased. But as a service provider working with SaaS companies, I also you know, see them having to do it. What was that like for you making that decision? Because I know it can be a very hard and kind of scary decision to make, right? To increase prices for your existing customer base. Yes. And so the, it was a little different. So we, we did take a two-pronged approach to that. So we did increase the price of our offerings to new customers, but we did not immediately tell all of our existing customers, well, we're going to raise you up to the same level. We've had those discussions as renewals have approached, and we've talked about the functionality that's been added, the value that's been added, and we've had conversations around our new pricing. We also added some into the solution level as a whole. So for example, we put more proactive customer success into our overall solution, including more consulting type guidance into that solution. So we had, we had multiple things to talk to customers about in terms of, well, this is the reasoning behind the upgrade 
that we want to talk to you about. And we have been successful uh, using that approach. And we're still involved in, in that process as we go through the year. Now, coming back to your question, how was it for me personally and then for the team? I have a fairly significant part of my career that I've spent in, in private equity, where frankly, pricing is more of a technique in, in that world. So I came into the company, number one, thinking this technology is great. There's no way we should be charging this low for it because the value is much higher. And two, I came into it with experience at multiple software companies raising prices. So for me, I was comfortable with it and I felt it was very fair. Like this is a fair price for our customers. The approach we're going to take is we're going to raise it, see how the market reacts. That went well. We raised it a little bit more and we may do that again at the beginning of next year. The team I was working with was less experienced with raising prices and was a little reticent at, at first. And we collaborated on it as a team and we basically just decided, hey, we're just going to try it. We can always negotiate back down, but especially in startup, it's an experiment. You change your pricing, see how the market reacts. And then you make adjustments from there, sometimes down, but also sometimes up after a period of time. Does that make sense? Makes complete sense. Now we're almost up on time here. So I'm going to end with just one final question. Let's zoom out three to five years into the future. What's the big picture vision that you're building here? The big picture vision for us is expanding out from being a content strategy platform to being a thought leadership strategy platform. What I mean by that is when our customers, customers, when their target market is searching for new solutions, they are using multiple channels and looking for multiple types of content across those channels. And that's where we're headed in the long term. We're going to stay on the path of considered purchase types where there's a lot of organizations where there's a lot of research. Our customers want to be known as thought leaders. They need to provide thought leadership content in order to stand out and to differentiate. We just want to help them do that across all types of contents, not just written website content, but audio and video, and then across all the possible channels where content is distributed. That's our long-term vision, thought leadership marketing platform. Amazing. I love the vision and I, I love everything that you're doing. We are over on time here, so we'll have to wrap. Before we do, if any founders listening in just want to follow along from a company building perspective, where should they go? Demandjump.com is our website. We'd love to have you visit and please reach out and reach out to any of us, reach out to me personally, be happy to, to talk to anybody about our company and our solution. Amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat. This has been a lot of fun and I know our audience is going to really enjoy it as well. Thanks, Fred. I really appreciate the opportunity and I enjoyed it very much too. All right. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 